Good morning, Church 21. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Trenton Walker. I'm one of the local pastors of Church 21, and my main area of ministry is the South Shore of Montreal. And as Evan said, we are finishing our sermon series on the book of Job. But before we get into all that, I want to ask a question. Have you ever heard of Niagara Falls? Raise your hand if you've heard of Niagara Falls. Okay. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Raise your hand if you've been to Niagara Falls. So it's about the same people that heard about it who've also seen it. And then there's people sheepishly thinking, what is this place I've never heard of or seen? Uh, Niagara Falls is a very huge waterfall in Canada. And there's something that I want to take note of. When, When you hear about a place like Niagara Falls, it's a lot different than seeing it in person. When you hear about the, the largest waterfalls in, in all of Canada, you, you don't imagine that the, the water coming over the cliff is going to fall at such a rate and such a vast volume that it's going to create its own wind and, and mist that's going to blow at you when you go to look at the waterfall. And you don't imagine that the ground is actually going to be shaking when you're, when you're standing at the lookout point. And so what I'm getting to is that there's a difference between hearing about a place and actually seeing it for yourself. And now, as we get into Job 42, we see Job say that there was a difference between hearing about God. He confesses, I'd only heard about you, but now I've seen you. And we'll look at what that means. But in reality, Job has heard about God, but now he has heard God speak. And What's the, what's the response that Job has? Well, he repents wholeheartedly. So as we get into Job 42, the first point for today is repentance. Repentance. And there's this whole premise that we came into this book with. It's that you don't go to the book of Job and look at it as a Q&A book. If you're looking at the book of Job as a Q&A book for all of life's questions, because it is in wisdom literature of the Bible, you get into Job and you're like, Mm-mm, I got more questions now. I got some problems with some of the things that people said, some of the things that God said. You're going to have more questions. In reality, the book of Job asks its own question. Is God wise and just? Period. And then asterisks, especially in suffering. So is God wise and just? Is God wise and just in suffering? And Job has learned the answer to this. And God spoke to Job in chapters 38 through 41. And we see God doesn't actually answer any of Job's questions. He has a lot of unresolved questions. God asks his own questions and gives no answers. And I just want to read you a quote from Max Licato. And he says this, God's questions, speaking of Job 38 through 41, aren't intended to teach. They're intended to stun. They aren't intended to enlighten They're intended to awaken. They aren't intended to stir the mind. They're intended to bend the knees. So after God speaks to Job in chapters 38 through 41, now we see Job responding to God. And here's the first thing that we see here, that there's a difference between hearing about God and hearing from God. Uh, Job says that his eyes have now seen God. His eyes have now seen God. Well, we know that based on scripture, that's probably not literally true because Job would have died. No one can see the holiness of God without uh, being, having a restored body. Uh, so that's not possible. So God was likely veiled 
uh, in the tempest in the same way that God veiled himself when he spoke to Moses, other uh, Old Testament characters in the Bible. And so what we're getting to is that there's, I'm saying this, there's a difference between hearing about God and hearing from God, hearing God speak for himself, experience his presence. And so the reality is, is that if you hear God speak, if you experience God's presence, you will have the feeling that you've actually seen God. And uh, Robert File says, truly, to see God is to hear God. And man, Evan did a great job talking about this in uh, the, the wisdom chapter of Job, Job 28. If you want to hear about God, if you want to learn more about God, you got to read God's word. You got to read the Bible. And, and I want to say to you today that the world can't tell you about God. Only the word can tell you about God. And you need to really think about this question. Where are you hearing about God today? Where are you hearing about God? And the reality is, is the follow-up question, are your sources rooted in God's word? Because today we're living not only in a time but in a country and more specifically a province where the culture is converting the church faster than the church is converting the culture. Christians are being converted into what the culture says is right, good, and just. And usually those things don't line up with what God's word says is right, good, and just. And so the church is being converted by the culture. So where are you hearing about God? Well, if we think about the secular world, there's a plethora of options. There's podcasts, movies, shows, books, social media influencers. And I'm not like trying to have this really cynical worldview. It's like you can't go outside. Don't even open your window or else you're going to hear something bad about God. The reality is, is do you realize, maybe it's not the whole show, maybe it's not the whole book, but there's a character somewhere here and there, or there's a social media influencer who's going to talk about their worldview. And the worldview is not going to be aligned, aligned with what God's word says. And it will distort your view. I I watched a movie recently where the antagonist, misunderstood, of course, is is talking, has this very long, perfectly articulated monologue where he deconstructs theism. He deconstructs deism. Uh, And it's kind of like the the filmmakers were like, here, if you want to have an argument against believing in, in, the, in God or gods, you can take this argument that we've provided for you in this, in this film. And, and the reality is that this is not new. Job experienced this. Job's wife, his friends, and his suffering were all working to distort his view of God. That was what Satan was doing. And Satan's tactics have not changed. They've not changed today for you, church. Satan wants to distort your view of God, which will hopefully lead to you doubting God's love, which will then lead to you cursing God. And ultimate victory for Satan is to be like, you know what? God may or may not exist, but I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. That's a victory for Satan. He was trying to attempt that with Job. He wanted Job to stop living so right and good before God and to just curse God. And so today, church, what are you hearing about God? And is what you're, you're hearing distorting your view of God? Are there any dog owners here today? Literally no dog. Okay, there's a couple. There are a couple dog owners. So my older brother, uh, Evan and I have an older brother. He's 11 years older than me. He bought this miniature pincer. And this dog is beautiful. It's like, it's so 
noble looking. It's about the size of a chihuahua. And I'm, I really want to apologize if the two people have a chihuahua here today. This miniature pincer is a lot less crazy than chihuahuas are. And so the one crazy thing about it, it did have one crazy thing about it. It had this weird view of itself. It probably, like my, brother, my older brother and I, we were kind of discussing, maybe it thinks it's really a Rottweiler. Because on walks, like nobody could step this dog. Like if there is another dog, 10 size its body mass, he, this, this little, uh, her name was Indy. Indy would stand her ground. She'd be like, you're not going to step me. I'm going to, like, you better watch out, like, barking nonstop. I don't know. I'm not a dog whisperer. So <laughs> barking nonstop. And what I'm getting at, this miniature, like a tiny dog, had a distorted view of itself, thinking that it could take a dog 10, side, 10, time, ooh, 10 times its body mass, right? Uh, and these other dogs are just looking at it like, what, what are you doing? And I want to ask you today, have you adopted a distorted view of yourself that leads you to looking at God and being like, God, you, you've lost control. God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you are not wise. You are not just. Do you have a distorted view of God that leads you to speaking to, to God in a wrong way? And Job did speak to God in a wrong way. Chapter, uh, let me see. Well, it's slipping in my mind now. One of the chapters, <laughs> Job basically writes this letter of his innocence. And it's like this legal document. He's like, now I'm taking you to court, God. And you have no option but to come and either say I am innocent or to curse me and punish me because I'm actually guilty. And that was later in Job, after all this suffering, it distorted his view. Because earlier in Job, he's like, nobody can take God to court. You could take God to court a thousand times, you'd lose a thousand times. Because God is so holy, so wise, so just. So Job did confess that he had sinned against God. He had adopted this distorted view of God. He probably had a root of pride in all of this. And, and what I want to say today is that God comes and speaks to Job. And that's what changed his distorted view of God. And God's speaking to you today, church. And this can change any distorted view we might have adopted. So are you hearing from God? If you're hearing about God, you're adopting a distorted view of God, you're going to speak in a wrong way about God. But the hope is in Job, and the hope is today, that God does speak, church. God speaks. He's speaking right now. He's speaking through his word. God speaks. And through his Holy Spirit, God speaks through his sons and daughters. And he speaks to you today. And all of this is intended to open our eyes, to be able to say, I've seen God because I've heard him speak and I've experienced his presence. So the next point on this topic of, um, of repentance is when you hear God speak, the appropriate response is usually confessing sin. So where are we hearing God speak? Are we studying God's word? In change group, we, we talk about studying God's word. We let God's word bring things to light. We confess to each other, and we pray. We, we confess, repent, and then we rejoice that God's speaking to us. He's changing things in our lives. We can receive teaching about God's word. We can participate in church community where God's word is preached. We can receive a word of exhortation, a word of prophecy from a brother or sister in Christ. And the reality is that often 
the Holy Spirit is moving in a way to lead us to confessing and repenting of our sins. And then the last point on this section of Job, we can look at Job 42.6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I want you to hear something right now. You don't get dust and ashes on you when you're standing. You get dirt on you when you're in the dirt. And maybe you've heard of the idea of back-breaking work. I used to work a job in, um, in high school as a teenager where I was uh, picking peppers in a, in a field. And I'm known to have a very long torso. Evan, my brother, he's taller than me when we're standing. But when we're seated together, I'm taller than him. I've got this long torso. Bending over does not do good things to my lower spine. I couldn't stand straight at the end of the day. And I only lasted about two weeks. Okay, so you've maybe heard of back-breaking work. But confessing sin is not back-breaking. It's knee-bending. And today, I believe that our church has Christian arthritis where we don't know what it is to bend our knees before God when we confess and repent sin. We, honestly, today, maybe bending your knees before God is like a metaphor. It's symbolism. We sing about it while we're standing. And I, like God actually convicted me, don't, don't say, here I am on bended knees if you're standing. And so that's just the way that God spoke to my heart. But today, I do believe this section of Job is saying that when you repent, you do bend your knees. When we confess our sins, we're humbled. God humbles us. And what better position to show God we are humbled before you, a holy, wise, and just God. Here we are on bended knees. And you might be here today saying, well, the reason I don't feel like I have to bend my knees is because I have Jesus. Like, I have Jesus. And, And we just preached through the book of Ephesians. And believe me, I'm with you when we're celebrating all the blessings that we have for those who are in Christ. Basically, being in Christ is the key to unlocking all the blessings that God offers in his word. But one thing that we don't unlock when we're in Christ is sinning willingly. You don't have permission to do that. You don't have a free reign in your life to continue sinning willingly. What you do have is that if if you say today, I have Jesus, I'm in Christ, the reality is that Jesus is in your life. You've invited him, him into your mind, your body, and your soul. Another way to think about this is like you're, you've invited him into your spiritual home. And he's walking around your spiritual home, your mind, body, and soul. And he's like, this can't stay here. Got to get this out of here. This can't stay here. Got to get this out of here. You've invited him to do that if you are in Christ. You've invited Jesus to literally clean house. My wife, Lorianne, she is a faithful homemaker, uh, a mother. She's also very entrepreneurial. She, she took training and education to be a biblical counselor. Uh, she works really hard. And in the last couple of weeks, in a moment of desperation, she kind of yelled out, not really to anyone in particular. I was like, my door was closed. I was working in my, my office, and I just hear, when am I going to be able to stop just following after everyone, cleaning up after them? And, and this happened right after she gave a very clear directive to our daughters, which uh, I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they make their own breakfast. It's super great. They're really independent, but they don't clean up anything. So she's like, you can make breakfast, you can clean up your breakfast. And so then a couple, maybe 30 minutes later, I hear this cry of desperation. 
It wasn't my daughters who were in trouble. It was me who was in trouble. I had left everything needed to make coffee on the counter. And it's not just like your regular stuff. It's like the coffee bag, the coffee grinder, the coffee scale, the Chemex, like coffee grains all over the place, cream. And I am confessing I'm a bit of a coffee snob, and you can keep me accountable for that. But basically, Lori Lori was addressing me in all this. I hadn't gone and cleaned up after myself. And I jokingly went out and I said, well, I just hadn't finished cleaning up yet. I wasn't finished yet, you know? I wasn't finished with my coffee. Now I'm finished. Now I put away everything. I'm done with my coffee. And I received a ha-ha in return. And what I'm getting to here is that if you are in Christ, Jesus is literally following after you, cleaning up after you forever through your mind, body, and your soul, your spiritual home. And when he's like, hey, you were supposed to give this to me. And like, how did it get back here? Do you snarkily respond, well, I just hadn't finished with it yet. I hadn't finished giving it to you yet. Or do you repent? That is the work that you've invited Jesus to do in your life. So it's, if you're in Christ, it's even a better reason to bend your knees in humility before him, confessing your sins as he's directly addressing them. And and so as Job repents, he says, I'm in dirt, I'm in dust and ashes. As Job repents, you're invited to repent because Jesus is the answer to the problem of sin. And my question is today, maybe, maybe it's not a problem understanding like bending knees or maybe like it's a metaphor or it's not really relevant today. Maybe it's a problem understanding the severity of sin. Paul understood the severity of sin. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I believe it's when we understand the severity of our sin that we confess, we repent, and we bend our knees. And I believe that the greater an understanding you have of your sin, the greater understanding of the salvation you have in Jesus. And before we move on, I want to remind you today that God literally said in the beginning of Job that Job was blameless. So if Job had something to get in the dirt and repent about, I believe we all have something to get on our knees and repent about. And and like I said, it's likely that Job was really confessing an area of pride where he was like, I'm so good, I have nothing to, to, to deserve this. I've done nothing to deserve this. He was right about that. It's just that you can't speak against God because then you're going to be wrong. And, and I just want to say that in all of Job, God never attacked Job's personhood. There's something important to hear about that because sometimes when there's this area of sin in our lives that's been unrightly attached to our personhood, we can feel like if Jesus or God saying, you know what, to follow me, you got to give that up. You're like, well, that's who I am. You can't ask me to give that up to you. But the reality is that God will always be bringing you into a right alignment of how he made you to live in creation. Your personhood has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with who God made you to be. And so God never, never touched Job's personhood. He was addressing uh, Job, the sin that ended up happening. He was uh, wise and just in the midst of all Job's suffering. And then after Job's repentance, he does repent, God then looks at Job's friends. 
And that's the next point for today, rebuking. Rebuking. You probably like really love these words you're hearing today, like confession, repent, uh, rebuking. Uh, it's pretty heavy. So here's a little anecdote. Have you ever heard of rose-colored lenses? Come on. Yes, yes. Heard of rose-colored lenses? Who here is like the rose-colored lens person? I'm going to raise my hand. You're very optimistic. You're like, everything's going to be great. And, and who here has at least a friend? Come on. Do you have a friend that has rose-colored lenses? Yes. Everyone needs a friend. And if, and if you are here today and you don't have that rose-colored lens friend, I can be that for you, as you need. But, okay, we've heard of that concept. Everything's great. Very optimistic outlook. Who has heard of chicken eyeglasses? You didn't see that coming, did you? Chicken eyeglasses. Okay, this is really important. I'm going somewhere with this because it's been a problem for about 100 years that domesticated birds can become really aggressive in, di- in different environments. And my theory is it's this whole thing about their eggs disappearing every day, but that's not what the scientists say. They, the problem is domesticated birds become abnormally aggressive and it leads them to attacking each other and actually can also end with cannibalism. And I'm going somewhere with this. Also, you can look this up. It's a real thing, but just don't do it right now. But in the early 1900s, chicken owners were using rose-colored chicken eyeglasses to absolutely resolve this problem. And I mean, mental image is probably better than what you'll find online, like chickens walking around with these little rose-colored lenses. What did the rose-colored lenses do? It stopped the chickens from seeing blood. And they had found that any presence of blood would trigger this abnormal, aggressive behavior. Okay? So here's where I'm getting to a point. Unlike chickens who, need, who needed these rose-colored lenses to block uh, or to, to veil the presence of blood, we today need crimson-colored lenses. Nothing is going to make sense about our existence here on this earth. Nothing is going to make sense about suffering. Nothing is going to make sense about God's word unless it is completely covered in the blood of Jesus. And so today, I want to invite you to take on crimson-colored lenses so that we can look at Job and we can look at our own lives covered in the blood of Jesus. And so as we work through this next portion of text, as God rebukes Job's friends, we'll look at three words, condemnation, sacrifice, and restoration. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. This is condemnation. Job's friends spoke wrongly about God and were condemned. And today, if you are not in Christ, you are condemned. And you might be like, whoa, man, that's heavy. It's just what the Bible says. I'll I'll show you where it says in scriptures that you probably know John 3.16. If you're part of a church for any amount of time, you probably learned it as a child. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, keep listening. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God did not send his son to condemn the world. Keep listening. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so the reality is, is that if you've not believed in the name of Jesus, 
you're already condemned. And I mean, I apologize if I'm the messenger that is giving you this news today, but this is what God's word says. But there's hope in what God's word says. It doesn't end there. You can believe in the name of the only Son of God, in the name of Jesus, and you can have your condemnation lifted off of you. But for those who have not believed, you are condemned, you will perish. And today, it's important to think about what do we contribute to lifting that condemnation. And the Bible says no work on your part, no religion is going to save you. And if you're here today, and you think, God and I, we're good. You know, I'm okay with a big man upstairs. My question to you is, why? Why would you say that? Defend yourself. Because we saw that Job's friends had knowledge about God, and they were off base, and they were rebuked. We also know that demons know about God. They know about God, too, and they shudder. That's what God's word says. So knowing about God, thinking, oh yeah, God and I are good, that's not good enough. And maybe you think today, well, my parents always went to church. I've just kind of been brought into that kind of faith culture. Or maybe you say, I go to church. I go to church. That's not good enough. And maybe you you think that on your own, you can be a good person. We look around the world. We look in Montreal. There's people doing good things. There's people doing good things. Uh, They're caring for the poor. They're caring for the hungry. And Job used that as a couple of arguments in in his innocence. I, I lived a really good life. I always gave food to the poor. But those things aren't good enough. The reason they're not good enough is that everything you do on your own is disgusting to God. If you're doing things on your own to be made right before God, it's actually disgusting to God because of the overwhelming stench and filth of your sin. So do we, do we understand the severity of sin today? Because really, in truth, only these crimson-colored lenses are going to help us understand that nothing we do is good enough. That only a perfect sacrifice, only a perfect work is sufficient. And that work has been completed in Jesus, and in Jesus Christ, condemnation can be lifted. But for Job and his friends, they were still living in a time where sacrifice was required. So the next thing we'll look at in verse 8 is sacrifice. And, and for Job's friends to be forgiven, they had to make an exceedingly expensive offering. This was seven bulls and seven rams. Uh, just in case you didn't know, those things are really expensive. And this is only an offering that the rich could afford. Only nobility could even think of, of offering such a costly offering. And this number, two sevens, 14, it's a symbol that in order for God's justice to be satisfied, he needed a perfect offering. And you might be here today thinking like, what? Okay, I'm listening to God, I believe. I'm listening to his word, and the things I'm hearing just make no sense to me. How is there this God, creator, who is holy, wise and just, over all creation that gets to demand like animal sacrifices. That just seems weird. I've only seen stuff like that in horror movies. Well, first of all, if God is truly holy, wise and just, he can demand that mankind hold an account for their actions. 
But the reality is today that the reason that offering sacrifices seem so distant to us, so strange, is because 2,000 years ago there was an offering that did completely satisfy God's desire for justice. And that is because of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I want you to hear this today. Jesus was the costly sacrifice that no one can afford. No one could even attempt to pay the cost. But Jesus paid it. And Jesus' sacrifice satisfied God's justice. This sacrifice, this death of Jesus, his resurrection, it paid the cost that you can't pay. And you need these crimson-colored lenses to understand that work was for you. You can receive the work that Jesus did when he died, but didn't stay dead. He was brought back to life. And it was for you, a wretched, filthy sinner. And that he is truly the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And you cannot come before God. You cannot possibly come before God unless you yourself are covered with the blood of Jesus. And anything you pursue outside of Jesus will not make you right. It will actually lead you to death. So we need a sacrifice, just as Job's friends need a sacrifice. And, and then God went further to say that even if Job's friends paid this costly sacrifice, it wouldn't be accepted unless Job prayed for them. So in verse 9, we see their restoration. And we look back at Jesus again, and we know that not only was he the one that paid our costly sacrifice, he's also the one who prays for us right now, just as Job prayed for his friends. And God accepts the prayers of Jesus, just as God accepted the prayers of Job. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is condemned? Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Today, do you have rose-colored lenses on, or or crimson-colored lenses, to understand that if you're in Christ right now, Jesus is praying for you. God has accepted the work of Jesus on your behalf. God is accepting the prayers of Jesus for you. He's alive. He's praying for you. And as we take a look through Scripture, we see in the very beginning, when God addressed the sin of Adam and Eve, what did Adam do? It was the woman you gave me. It was her fault. He blamed. When God addresses Job's sin, Job confesses. He said, it was I. But when Jesus took the sin, the shame, the filth, the guilt of all the world on him, your filth, your guilt, your shame on him 2,000 years ago, he said nothing. He said nothing. Jesus was our silent sufferer who is no longer silent today. He's praying for you if you are in Christ. He is praying for your restoration. And today I don't want to confuse condemnation with conviction. 
The Bible is clear. If you are not in Christ, you are already condemned. You should feel pretty bad about your place. And you should be pretty frustrated with me for messing up things about how you believe the world works. And I'm just saying what God's word says. But if you're here today and you say, I believe in the name of the only Son of God, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, then you are never again going to experience condemnation. But you can experience conviction. And, and there's been this misalignment where we think all shame is toxic, bad shame. Another definition for that is narcissism. And the reality is that there is good shame. When you do something wrong, you should understand that it was wrong. You should feel shame. So the Holy Spirit uses shame. It can be exchanged with the word conviction to lead us towards confessing our sin and repenting. And this is going to happen for those who have invited Jesus into their mind, body, and soul and said, you have the key to my spiritual home. Help me clean this place up. Help it make it a bit more like you'd like it to be. So you are going to experience conviction and you can bend your knees, hand that over to Jesus and say, here you go, take it. It's yours. And you know what happens? In that moment, we, we stop short sometimes. We say, it's yours, it's done. Now I'm going to try to not ever do that thing again. We can actually say, here's this sin that you addressed in my life, Jesus. Take it. Can you please give me something in return? Can you give me more of your Holy Spirit to help me fight this sin and to experience the joy that you've purchased for me on the cross? We can ask Jesus for something in return. And so today, as we confess and repent, we only receive more of God's Holy Spirit and we only receive more peace, more joy, more fruit of the Spirit. So if you're practicing confession and repentance and you're consistently experiencing this sense of condemnation, God's just going to crush me. Everything I'm doing is wrong. God hates me. I hate myself. Those things don't work. You can't confess and repent and still feel shame and condemnation. So let's not rule out the work of Satan who's going to attempt to do what he, he's always attempting to do. Distort your view of God, make you question God's love for you, make you curse God, and go on living your life happily without him. And today we do need those crimson-colored lenses, and without them, Satan will succeed. He'll stir up these abnormal behaviors in humanity, and even in Christians, towards God. Another term for an abnormal behavior could just be pride. Pride leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to anger pointing towards God. And it's by God's grace in Job's life, and it's by God's grace in our life today that no matter what we're experiencing, especially suffering, God's going to do a work that will lead towards complete restoration. Do we believe that today? Do we want restoration? Do we want our spiritual home cleaned? God's going to do that work. And so as we finish our sermon series on Job, we have this brief epilogue, this chapter 42. And at the very end, we find that God restores all of Job's fortunes. And so my final point for today is restoration. I mean, it was a sub-point already, but it's, a, it's another time. It's a double feature on restoration. So 
God restores all of Job's fortunes, and we have to take note that Job repented and confessed his sin in the dirt without having any idea that he'd ever receive anything from God while he was still suffering, when he had absolutely no knowledge that God would restore his health, his family, his fortunes. But in verses 10 through 17, we see that God gives everything back. His suffering is not only over, but he has gained so much in return. So I want to look at what Job has gained. Job has gained a treasure. His treasure is this. He understands that God was all he truly wanted and God is all he truly needs. We need to understand this. We need to understand when God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Is God's grace all that you need? Job did not need his suffering to be removed. He needed to encounter the living God. And Job needed God to be all he needed. And then the next treasure that Job gained was, yes, his fortunes doubled. Yes, he encountered God through his suffering. But his treasure did change him. God became Job's ultimate treasure. And immediately we see evidence that Job is becoming aligned with God's heart towards creation. And you can look through Job. You can look through his his plea of innocence and be like, well, Job was already pretty great. Like, I could aspire to be Job and, and fail at that. Are you saying there's like more? And yes, there's more. God aligned Job's heart towards his very own heart for creation. And we see that, yes, everything Job had was doubled in return except for his children. Except for his children. So in the beginning of Job, first couple chapters, there's this poetic structure of everything that Job has, all of his blessings, and then everything that Job lost. And his blessings started from greatest to least, and he lost everything from least to greatest. His greatest blessing was his children. And his children is the only thing that God did not double. And the first thing that Job is learning through this, and that we can learn through this, is the value of human life exceeds, to the furthest extent, the value of property. You need to hear this today. Your life is valuable. I don't know if you've ever questioned that. I don't know, maybe you're in a time of suffering where you're questioning, is my life really valuable? Well, God's word says yes. Hear what God is saying to you. Your life is valuable. Your children's lives are valuable, a blessing. I know there's probably like just one family here. Your children's lives are valuable. All human life has the highest value in all of God's creation. And and this point here, that he didn't just give Job 14 sons and six daughters. It's showing us life is the most valuable thing that God can give. But that's not it. There's this extreme emphasis that we really don't see much place else in the Old Testament put on Job's daughters. An emphasis put on women that's really important to take note of here. Job wrote them into their, his inheritance. They talk, it talks about the beauty of his daughters. It, we have their names. These are some of the only names of women in the Old Testament that we really have. There's not a long list. Uh, and so I want to say, that, uh, Scripture says, their father gave to them an inheritance among their brothers. 
This doesn't happen in patriarchy, okay? It's not a thing. So after Job encountered God, after God became Job's treasure, after his heart became aligned with God's own heart for creation, he valued his daughters more. And you need to hear today that women have an equal value in all of God's creation. And maybe you hear people criticize God's word. Well, they're not going to lead you to Job 42 verses 14 through 15 because that's going to mess up the argument. They're going to say the Bible's all about male dominance. It's all promoting patriarchy. That was a human thing. It's not a God thing. When God encounters someone, when people see God, hear God, and encounter his presence, they come to understanding that all life is valued. And what we see here in Job, the, the daughters being written into Job's inheritance, it's a foreshadowing. When God would give his own inheritance, it would be for men and women. When God gave his only son to die for men and women to receive eternal life, to receive his Holy Spirit, and if ever God fails to pay out what he owes as in our inheritance, Ephesians uses the word Erebon. It means that God will actually have to pay double. Men and women alike who are in Christ, who believe in Jesus Christ, have an inheritance, and it's all of God. And finally, Job enjoyed his treasure for a long time. And listen, this is just wrapping things up. Job lived a long life. And this revealed something. It revealed that he continued to treasure God. Psalm 91 talks about those who make God their refuge and dwelling place. It says this, with a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so Job, he persevered through suffering. He was reconciled. Job died an old man and full of his days. But we can know that in his latter days, Job treasured God. Job sought to make God his place, his dwelling place, and his refuge. I just want to read you a quote here, because there's this question of suffering, and it's hard to, to reconcile. But John Hartley says, Yahweh, another name for God, is the great giver of life and blessing, not a capricious, meaning illogical or unstable tyrant, who takes pleasure in the suffering of those who serve him merely to test their loyalty. Yahweh may withdraw his favor for a season, but his love is for a lifetime. So we're going to conclude here. Is God wise and just in suffering? And Job says the answer is always yes. And maybe you're here today and you're experiencing suffering. And in the gentlest way, I want to present to you that when you suffer, you don't ask the question, why am I suffering? Because of Job, we learned that we asked the question, God, what are you doing through my suffering? God, what are you doing through my suffering? And the answer, you already have it in Job. The answer is always that God is inviting you into a deeper understanding of his love, into a deeper under, uh, relationship with him, and into a deeper dependency on him. All will suffer. We probably all have a story here today of a way that we suffered in life. And suffering is an inescapable human experience. And by God's grace, and, I, and as I pray for you, church, it's that when we question our suffering, we'll say, God, how are you drawing me into a deeper 
relationship, a deeper understanding of your love, or deeper dependency on you. And A.W. Tozer says this, It's doubtful whether God will use a man greatly unless he hurts him deeply. And maybe you're here today and you have scars, like literal wounds on your flesh. And if you can, if it's not a visible part of your body, you can look at it right now. I have one right here on my thumb. We have real visible scars. And, And maybe as you're looking at this scar, I want to remind you that God, the creator of the universe, made your body in a way that it can heal itself to a certain degree. And maybe, maybe like me, you, you bandaged your wound. You, you cleaned your wound. But did you choose to reform skin and muscle? And then, and then now that's proven by the scar. Did you choose to heal your body? We rationally say no. God's formed you in a way that your body does that on its own. And, and I want to say to you today that suffering can cause this emotional wound. It can, we can suffer through even physical wounds. And those wounds cut deeply. And I want to tell you that God has made a way to heal your wounds through the wounded healer, Jesus Christ. And when we suffer, and that tempts us to an abnormal behavior, bitterness, blame, anger towards God, when we're tempted into self-pity, I need to remind you that that's leading towards destruction. What we can do is we can look at suffering through crimson-colored lenses, and we can know that by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the wounded healer, is directly involved in healing your emotional, your physical wounds as he works through your mind, body, and soul, as he cleans your spiritual home. And as we started talking about Niagara Falls, we, we can hear about a place like Niagara Falls. It's not the same as seeing it. We can hear about God. It's not the same as hearing God, encountering his presence. And so my invitation to you really is to remember that in suffering, you don't need to ask the question, God, did you turn your back on me? Have you stopped speaking? We can know that at any moment, suffering or not, God is calling to you. He's calling you to approach him on bended knees, covered with the blood of Jesus, to only receive more of him as your true treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you you're not silent. God, I know that you're speaking today. If someone here has never believed in the name of the only Son of God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you'd give them the faith to believe today. And as all of those who are in Christ are understanding the way that Jesus is working through our mind, body, and soul, and the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, God, I pray that we would respond on bended knees, giving over to you what you're asking for and receiving more of you in return. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.